He's like, hey, they need an English teacher. And I was like, well, I have an English degree. Because when I was playing football in college, English was the easiest subject I knew. <laughs> I was like, I already speak English. I know how to write. This would be easy. And so I majored in English because it was not particularly challenging. <laughs> I'm being totally honest. You just wanted to do the sports. Exactly. Sports was the number one thing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Detouring, a podcast about people who've changed their careers. My name is Yahweh and I'm your host. Today, I'm here with Gabe, uh, who used to do uh, a lot of work for churches, doing homeless missions, and now he's like fully transitioned into doing board game design, podcasting, managing a community. Gabe, do you want to say hi? Well, hello. What's up, my friends? Good to be here. Appreciate you having me. So I'm going to try something new, and I'm going to ask you, what did you want to be as a kid? Yeah, so growing up, uh, I'm from Alabama. And uh, if you can't tell by my accent, I'm from the South. <laughs> and uh, uh, around here, football is king. Football is God. That is basically all you eat, sleep, and breathe, repeat. And uh, that's, that's all I ever wanted to do. Play in middle school. You play in high school. Uh, if you're good enough, you'll play in college. And I was able to do all of those things. And um, I had a, a decent little career and, and hope to play in the NFL. As every you know, young man in Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi, all these places down here, that, that's just what you want to do. You see the bright lights. You see the... You know, Monday night football and stuff like that. And then you're like, oh, that could be me one day. And uh, so that's what I, I did my absolute best to uh, to do. And it didn't quite work out that way. I thought I was going to be a lot bigger than I turned out to be. <laughs> uh, but I, I quit growing when I was in, uh, let's see, ninth grade. I, I was like 5'10 in ninth grade. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to be six foot three. I have a lot of people in my family that are big and tall and just like really massive human beings. And uh, I didn't keep growing. And so, you know, that def- definitely didn't help. But, uh, you know, things didn't, didn't quite work out and uh, ended up like you said, uh, working for churches and getting into missions. And I was able to go all over the world doing some really cool things on lots of, you know, very interesting trips and met a lot of amazing people around the world. And uh, yeah, it's been absolutely an adventure. I don't know that I would change anything. Maybe, maybe like one good year in the NFL. Like if I could go back and have like just one good year and then like break my leg or something and be like, oh, well, you know, that that's it. But uh, overall, man, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. So you did get to do football in college, right? I did. I did. I did a lot of practicing in college. Uh, I played some. did not get the opportunities that uh, I, I would have hoped for. But uh, yeah, I did get to play in the SEC. I played at Auburn University. And uh, actually, I graduated. And then the next season, the team won the national championship. So I missed it by that much. One season Ooh. off. And what's funny, my high school, they won the state championship the year before I started playing. And then my college won the national championship the year after. And so like I was in this weird championship-less career where it bookended <laughs> by two championships that I was not part of the team. And so I don't know, I should go to the NFL, like NFL teams be like, hey, if you put me on your team for a year, then you cut me. And then the next year you'll win the Super Bowl. Maybe that's it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be the token player. Exactly. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it works. Who knows? I mean, you, 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 they can try. I mean, it's worth a shot. I'll take the league minimum. League minimum. I mean, it's only three hundred fifty thousand dollars for that. You know, that's the minimum in the NFL. So yeah, I'll, I'll you know give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, why not? So how did you how did you go from sports to something you know working in a church, which is very very charitable, very it's completely different in my eyes anyway. Yeah. Well, again, being from the South, church is just part of a, a way of life. You know, whether people actually believe the stuff or not, it, it depends. But uh, you grow up, you go to church on Sunday, you're part of the youth group. It's just kind of what we do culturally here as much as anything and so you know i grew up in church i had just amazing friends amazing mentors amazing people in my life in the church community 
And then, so after I graduated from Auburn, I didn't really know what to do. I was very much at a loss. Because, again, I had put all my eggs in this one basket mm-hmm. of, hey, let's go play professionally. And I had a bunch of Arena League tryouts and Canadian League tryouts and, and stuff like that. And nothing really worked out for lots of different reasons. And so I actually ended up living in Los Angeles. I had a friend of mine that I had graduated with who was from Los Angeles. And uh, he was trying to figure out his life as well. And so he said, hey, man, I'm going, I'm going to move back home and live in my parents' basement and figure this stuff out. He's an engineer. He's trying to get an engineering job somewhere. I knew I wanted to write a book and I you know, had lots of like creative kind of stuff I wanted to try out. And so I actually moved in with him and lived in his parents' basement for several months. And uh, when I was out in Los Angeles, uh, I kept running into just different opportunities to work with people on the streets and people experiencing homelessness. And I'd been on tons of mission trips growing up. And so I already had you know, a heart for ministry, heart for missions. And I started doing that. Started volunteering out there at various uh, shelters and, and different organizations. And uh, there was no plan. It wasn't like, oh, I'll do this for a while and that'll turn into a job or you know something like that. It was just like, I feel like I should be doing this and it was good work and I was enjoying it. I said, I did that for about three months. And then um, my youth director from high school, like when I was growing up, one of the main mentors in my life, he was working at this church in Atlanta. And uh, he, he calls me up. He says, hey man, uh, this church I work for, they've got this idea. They want to start this new ministry, working with people that are experiencing homelessness. As soon as I heard about the job, I thought of you. What are you doing? Where are you living? You know, like, tell me, he, like, he didn't even know I was working with the homeless out in Los Angeles. Like, we hadn't talked to each other in a while. And I told him, I was like, well, I'm out here working with the homeless. He said, okay, you're hired. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, it's kind of funny how it all worked out. But uh, anyway, I moved to Atlanta and I was working for the church there and, and doing a lot of really cool stuff, going under the bridges and going under the overpasses and, and just trying to help people, you know, trying to help people get their lives back together and get into rehab or get jobs or, you know, get off the street, whatever. And, um, it was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed doing that. And that, strangely enough, led me to Honduras, of all places. So the church I worked for went all over the world. But uh, but I did all domestic stuff. I did all city stuff. Like, I didn't really have a huge desire to go outside the country. Mm-hmm. And, and I was happy for them to go. And my boss at the church, he was the missions pastor. And he went all over, and he led these mission teams. And, and it was great. But I, I was like, yeah, you know, there's no Chick-fil-A over there. They don't play the right kind of football. So <laughs> no thanks. Uh, <laughs> But uh, anyway, they had this big trip going to Honduras that was coming up. And three days before they left, uh, my, my boss, he had this uh, family emergency pop up. And so he had to back out. He couldn't go on the trip. And I ended up having to go in his place. And I was not super excited about that. I didn't know where Honduras was on a map. I didn't know what the team was doing. I didn't know a single person. There's like 30 people on the, on the team. I didn't know a single one. And I was the youngest person now on the team by two decades and I'm in charge. It's like, I'm ha- I have to lead this, this group of people. I don't know any of them. They're all way older than me. And so let's go figure that out. But uh, anyway, we got down to Honduras. And uh, during that week, I ended up meeting the woman that I am now married to. Uh, and strangely enough, she's from Alabama. I had to go to Honduras to meet another girl from Alabama. <laughs> like she grew up three hours north of where I grew up. Like our high school played each other in sports. It was just ridiculous. And so anyway, uh, we, you know, I met her. And then about a year later, we got married. And, uh, and she was already in the process of adopting two little girls at the time. And so, you know, we got married. I came into that process. And so now we have those two girls that uh, we finally finished the adoption uh, just a couple of weeks ago, actually. It only oh. took eight years. Eight years for the adoption. Wow. Oh, man, it was crazy. That's a whole other adventure. Um, but we have two other kids as well. So we have four kids. And uh, we just moved back to Alabama after eight years in Honduras. She was there for 12. But uh, anyway, again, it's been a wild ride, man. I, I never could have guessed that I would have taken this this path, but uh, it's been Yeah, fun. it seems all very serendipitous. It's it's like maybe if you went back and had one good year in the NFL, none of this would have happened. Yeah, absolutely. Almost predestined, I would say. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely could be. And uh, I'll ask God one day, like, hey, man, what was going on here or there? Like, can I get, can we run the tape back and let me just see what was happening <laughs> behind the scenes, things I didn't see or understand at the time? Yeah, it, it's really cool to look back and, and kind of see these moments. And mm. I call them so that moments. Uh, I wrote a book actually years ago called So That, and it was all about, like, why things happen to us. Like, the oldest question in the world of, like, why God, why? You know, like, why are these bad things happening to me? I'm a good person. I feel like people have been asking that for bazillions of years. And, and so many things, if you look back, you can kind of see these, these puzzle pieces fall into place that maybe you didn't understand at the time, right? But there's like a bigger picture going on and you're like, oh shoot, that really terrible, tragic thing that happened was awful and it will always be awful. Like cancer is always bad, divorce is always bad. It's not like, oh, I'm glad divorce happened. Oh, I'm glad the car wreck happened. Like, no, that's awful, yeah. it's tragic. But there, there's good things that can come out of really bad, tragic situations. And, and sometimes you look back on your life and you go, oh, shoot, that bad thing happened so that this amazing thing could come out of it, could you know happen later. And um, yeah, my life has just been full of those moments, it seems like. And let's go back a little bit to the, to the first missions that you were doing. So what does that involve? What is, like, what is it like to work with a homeless that you were doing in L.A., I think you were said? Yeah, I was in, in Los Angeles. Uh, L.A. and Atlanta, yeah. Right. And then, uh, then you moved and then you started doing... It, was it still a work with the homeless? In Honduras? Yeah. No, no. In Honduras, I ended up uh, working with orphans. Uh, I lived at an orphanage for about a year and a half. Right. And then I got a job at a school up in the mountains outside uh, Tegus, Tegucigalpa, which is the capital of Honduras. Third most dangerous city in the world. Fun fact for those wow. playing along. Um, if, if you count things like murder and violent crime, you know, then. Mm -hmm. but, <laughs> but where I lived, it was, it was very nice up in the mountains. But uh, anyway, so working with the homeless, it's interesting, man. Especially... It's so different, and it's been kind of cool to see poverty from lots of different angles, right? Because if you only see it from where you're from, you think, oh, this is what poverty is. But you realize it's, it's different everywhere you go. Uh, and in the United States, poverty is very interesting. So I, I'll give you an example. You know, people experiencing homeless, homelessness in the States have different issues than people experiencing poverty around the world. Around the world, it's, it's hunger is an issue, right? Uh, where I was in Atlanta, it's obesity. Uh, homeless folks eat too much. It's very strange. You're like, how is that possible? And so a lot of the folks on the street are dealing with diabetes. They're dealing with heart disease. They're dealing with all the issues that come from excess, right? Having too mm. much. And it's like, well, how in the world is that happening? Well, it's because there are so many churches. There are so many ministries. There are so many places that are trying to help people. And one of the best ways that they know how is with food. And if you're on the street, you don't have a refrigerator. You don't have a pantry. You don't have a way to store food. And so you end up in this like kind of strange psych psychological space where you're like, well, I don't know if I'm going to eat tonight at this uh, soup kitchen where I'm, I'm probably going to go. Like, what if they don't serve dinner? Like, what if they're not open? What if people didn't bring, bring food today? Whatever. Uh, here's an opportunity to eat. Let me go ahead and do that. And then you still go to the soup kitchen later. And so you eat again. And so it was very apparent to me. So I actually went out and I spent a week on the streets uh, of Atlanta. And I just slept uh, under the overpass. I slept in the shelters. I, I w ate at the soup kitchens. I did what normal days of people that live on the street just to see it just to get an understanding because i was always on the other side of the table mm. right and so i was like okay well let me let me kind of get it from the ground level and i was eating five or six times a day right and, and it's not good food it's like hot dogs and spaghetti and it's a lot of carbs and it's not it's all processed food and it's not fruits and vegetables it's just mass production kind of food right it's no wonder that people in the, the u.s end up with all sorts of issues even though they live on the street even though they're poor even though they're kind of on the bottom rung of society but so there's that side of things, but then you also have, there's a lot of addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol. Uh, and so a lot of people that just need to figure their lives out from a, a rehab standpoint, uh, there's lots of brokenness. There's lots of uh, people who've been to prison 
who are now on the street because they can't get government assistance, right? You can't get government housing. If you have a felony charge, you can't get lots of different things that would probably help them to a certain degree, but they don't have access to it. You know, their, their options are very limited. And it's no wonder that a lot of people go back to prison, right? Because they don't have the options. And so, like, of course, they're going to sell drugs. Of course, they're going to do violent things because they're very limited in what they can do. And that's the life they know probably anyway. You know, they probably grew up in a very tough situation. And so, anyway, lots of different issues, man. And a lot of it is mental. A lot of it's psychological. A lot of people with mental illness on the street. When I first started, this is like 12 years ago, about 40% of the, the folks on the streets were, were veterans mm. uh, dealing with PTSD, dealing with drug addiction, dealing with all sorts of stuff that came out of their service to the country, right? And as patriotic as America is, and as, as much as people are like, you know, bless our soldiers and we love our troops, we support our troops. At the time, almost half of the homeless population were veterans. And it's like, well, this this doesn't line up at all. Uh, now, luckily, over the years, uh, that's gotten a lot better. There have been a lot more veterans programs that have gotten people off the street, gotten people into rehab, into housing, into programs to kind of get their lives back together. And so I, I really love seeing that. Anyway, that's a whole other set of issues. And so then you have like women and kids. That's a whole other issue. And then you have... Uh, single men, which is a, a huge proportion of things. But then you run into these like edge cases where you have like a, a father with kids. You know, there are tons of women and children's shelters. Mm. There are not very many at all fathers with kids shelters. Like it doesn't exist. And so anyway, there's a million different things that you could easily spend your entire lifetime trying to solve one of those issues and never get to the bottom of it. And it's, it's, it's a hard, hard thing. I have nothing but respect and love for the people that do that stuff day in and day out because it's it's so challenging. It sounds like it's a very dynamic, very chaotic, maybe, environment. You, you're never quite sure what you're going to see that day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have to be very flexible. <laughs> What's the old phrase? Like, God blesses the flexible because they don't get bent out of shape or something like that. <laughs> because you never know what is going to walk through the door. Every day, you're going to see something new. You could be doing this stuff for 50 years, and there's still going to be new situations because everybody's so different. And that's another thing that's so challenging because you have to create systems and, and processes that are for the mass, right? That yeah. fit, quote unquote, everybody, even though not possible. But then you have so many people that fall through the cracks. Like I was talking about with, with fathers with kids. You can't build a system for that because there's it's not that many. But there are some, right? And and so you run into these these situations. And unfortunately, a lot of times there's not much you can do. You also run into the moments that just kind of wreck you. Uh, a friend of mine who's been doing this work for like 15 years. So she works at this big uh, organization in kind of the heart of Atlanta downtown. And um she was telling me one about one day this um, this woman came in and was needing some help and, and just needed, I don't know, she needed clothes or, or shoes or something like that. And she she smelled really bad. Like, she just smelled awful. Like, she hadn't had a shower in who knows how long. And this organization has showers. And they have soap and shampoo and they have all the stuff you need. And, you know, you can lock up your stuff so it doesn't get stolen and all that. And so my friend was like, you know, hey, you know, we've got this, we've got access to this. And she was trying to be nice, trying to be polite. You know, she's not like, hey, you smell. But she was like, hey, if you need a shower... You know, we got all the stuff here. You can do that. And the lady's like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. Two or three times. My friend, she like kind of just suggested, hey, you know, we got these shower facilities because she, I mean, just smelled as bad as a human can smell. After one time where my friend said, hey, you know, if you want to shower, let me know. Um, the woman said, you don't understand. When I smell like this, they don't try to hurt me. And it was like, oh, this is, this is a defense mechanism. And you start thinking through what has happened to this woman? that she has realized that this is how she protects herself. You know what I mean? Like, all of a sudden, your mindset changes because you didn't think that was the reason. Like, of all the reasons you had in your head, why this woman smells bad, protection was probably not anywhere on the top of that list. And there's so many situations like that where you just, like, your whole world, your whole, like, worldview gets wrecked because you're like, oh, 
dang, I never even thought of that. I never even thought somebody would be dealing with that. And that's tough, man. It's hard. Like very few people have long careers in this type of type of work because it just messes you up so bad. You get burnt out and you, you carry so much weight around. It's it's hard to keep going. Uh, if, if I if I was doing this, I, I bet I would need some psychological support after just seeing. I don't. I'm not even leaving this, and I just seeing this, just knowing that this could happen. Like you, I was going through all the reasons why this woman didn't smell very well. And that was, like you said, not at the top of my list. And just right. to think, I've, I've went through so many things and this is what I have to do so that I am safe. That is, that is a horrible thought. Right. But then we went to Honduras to work in the offer, uh, with orphans, right? Yes, that is. That's true. And what was that one like? Man, a lot of similarities. I mean, anytime you're dealing with people who are struggling, people who are going through a hard time, again, these, these are mostly kind of mental and psychological things that people are dealing with. Mm. Uh, it's hard. It was a different kind of hard, though. It's a hard thing to do for a long time, man, because, again, you carry this weight. The longer I was there, the more I realized how awful the orphanage system is by its nature. Like, there's no... Even the best orphanage in the world is a terrible place. Mm. Even if it's safe, even if they have access to food and housing and, sh and, and clothing and education, even if you have everything a person needs in life physically, they don't have parents. And unless you have a, an organization that kind of creates that family model where you have someone that's not your mom or your dad, but is someone that you can put in that space, like that role in your life. And I, I know some people that work at orphanages and they, they do that. It's kind of like a family setting and they kind of got these houses and you've got like 10 or 12 kids in the house. And you have a house parent and all that. That can work. But where I was, was much more of an institution. And so the problem is you have, so I'll give you an example. There were about 500 kids at this orphanage uh, and nowhere near enough staff to actually handle it properly. Uh, and so I was partly in charge of the teenage boys, right? So we had some of them around 90, 95 of these 13 to 19 year old boys. And there were two of us in charge. Wow. So it was two supervisors, two adults to 90 to 95 young men. Just think about, it takes two parents, two people to take right. care of one child. Right. Now we've got two people taking care of 90 yes. teenagers. And so it was basically just managing chaos all day long. It's making sure nobody runs off. It's making sure no one dies. It's making sure your fights get broken up. And so it turns into, unfortunately, this kind of institutional prison type mm. situation. It's not exactly prison, you know what I mean? But, but it's got that kind of vibe to it because you're just an overseer. You can't get to know 95 people, you know, like I have a hard enough time getting to know my four kids, like four of them, you know, but throw me with 90, 95, it's just not going to happen. And so you, you find yourself just kind of managing the chaos. And unfortunately, because of that, kids get into this institutional mindset, right? So similar, if a person goes to prison for 20 years, when they get out, their brain is different, right? They, it takes them a while, if ever, to readjust to quote unquote normal society. Yeah. But at least as an adult, if you grew up kind of in some kind of situation, a normal-ish situation, and then went to prison, you know that prison is not real life. You know that this is its own separate bubble with different rules and different situations, and you got to have, you know, you got to be different. But when you get out, you're like, okay, let's go back to reality. Yeah. If you grow up in prison, if you grow up in an institution, then you think that's real life. And so when you get out, when you turn 18 or 20 or whatever it is, and you kind of age out or you go out into the world, you, you carry all that with you. That institutionalization has changed your brain. And it's scientific. It's not even like anecdotal. Like studies have shown kids that grow up in orphanages, one, their IQ is way lower, partially because you're kind of in that fight or flight situation all day long. Like your brain mm -hmm. doesn't grow the way it's supposed to because it, it, it's kind of always in this paranoid, uh, I'm in danger state. 
and so it doesn't create the pathways like it's supposed to. Your socialization is, is all messed up. You don't know how to you don't know how to be in the real world because you've never been in the real world. Man, <laughs> I feel like it's all doom and gloom in this podcast. Sorry about that. But um, <laughs> and so anyway, dealing with that and just trying to figure out okay, how do we change these systems? Because again, you got to do stuff today to help people that are struggling today. But then you also kind of have, have to back out and go, okay, what can we do structurally? What can we do systemically that can how, kind of help these situations long term where kids grow up in families, where people never experience homelessness, right? How do we stop it before it starts? You know, all those kind of issues. And so that's more and more what I've been trying to get into. Mm. And that somehow led you into teaching English. Yeah, that was kind of a serendipitous thing, too. Um, I knew I was wanting to get out of that orphanage. It was just not a good situation. Uh, I was working three weeks on, one day off. I worked 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. pretty much every day. So 12 hours a day, three weeks in a row, one day off. Wow. Not a not a healthy system. Not a healthy uh, schedule there. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I got to do something else. Uh, and my wife was in the same situation. Uh, she was actually working a little bit more than I was because she had been there longer. And so it was like, okay, we got to do something else. This is not good for our marriage. It's not good for our family. I don't really want to be part of this system that I don't agree with. So anyway, uh, a friend of mine had gotten a job at a school a few hours away. One day he's like, hey, man, I need a reference for this uh, interview I got coming up. And I was like, oh, tell me about it. And we were talking about it. And um, anyway, he's like, hey, they need an English teacher. And I was like, well, I have an English degree. Because when I was playing football in college, English was the easiest subject I knew. <laughs> I was like, I already speak English. I know how to write. This would be easy. And so I majored in English because it was not particularly challenging. <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. You just wanted to do the sports. Exactly. Sports was the number one thing. Uh, and I was really good at English. I was good at writing, good at reading, good at figuring things out and putting my ideas into, you know, on paper and stuff like that. And uh, so anyway, I had an English degree and I fit the requirements of what they were looking for and so i applied and uh he and i both got the job he was a science teacher and i was an english teacher and uh ended up working for this really excellent school that yeah had a lot of great years with and really enjoyed and is still working uh, part-time with them now trying to help him with some other things like professional development and things like that that i'm kind of helping with as i transition back here to the uh, united states and so yeah it was, it was a great opportunity i loved the love the kids there love the people there just had a really great time did you notice any difference from the school system in the U.S. versus the versus Honduras? Yeah, it's a little bit different because I was in a private Christian school, right? Which is a little bit different than like the public schools in Honduras. Uh, it's it's man, they they got nothing. They get, they don't have books. They don't have desks. They don't have access to much. And so the public system is very very challenging. And uh, my heart goes out to anybody trying to teach in that situation where it's basically what's in your brain. Can you get it out into these kids? Because you don't have access to a lot of the other resources that you need. The private system is a little different where you do have access. The, the school I was at, they actually run a dual diploma uh, where the school was accredited in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these kids were able to graduate and have a U.S. accredited degree, which means they could go to a university in the States or Canada or Europe. And so we had kids that went all over the world on scholarships. That was great. And, and also the kids, by the time they got to me, I taught 10th and 12th grade English. By the time they got to me, they were very fluent. Like, this is a very high caliber school as far as the English goes. And um, we had a lot of North American teachers there, and they, mm. they actively recruited North Americans. Like, that was their thing. It's like, okay, we're going to have a really high-quality edu uh, English education. And so that was cool, man. Where by the time they got to me, you know, again, I'm from Alabama, so some of those kids spoke better English than I did. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, was, it was a great experience overall. But difference-wise, one of the main things was I didn't have to worry so much about the government looking over my shoulder, right? A lot of the schools here in the States, the government – whether you're talking about Republican or Democrat, it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, the government's very, very involved in the education uh, system. And sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. But where I was, it was very just kind of, hey, get get the job done. Here are the things you have to teach, like the concepts. And the way you teach them is a little bit more on you. So if you want to teach 
this novel versus that novel, this play versus that play. It doesn't matter. Just whichever one you get excited about, but just make sure these concepts are being taught. And so that was nice. I didn't have to have all the red tape or bureaucracy. A lot of my friends here in the, the States have had to go through as far as teaching. Mm. No, that sounds, that sounds perfect, actually, being having that freedom to teach however you want. Uh, I, I'm thinking like the, the way I learned English. I mean, we, we all have English in schools here. Um, uh, most most of European countries, we, we teach English as a second language, but uh, the real learning happens outside of the classroom. So it's learning through games, learning through movies, etc. And if you if you're able to use those kinds of resources to you know teach certain concepts then uh, it's, it's a lot better because sometimes the government doesn't know what this this individual class needs and maybe this individual in this class needs because you know just too many kids in a country right yeah. and you know it's sometimes it's, it's better to trust the teachers that they're doing a good job yeah it's a novel concept hire people that you think are qualified and then trust them to do the job you hired them for that's what a brilliant idea that I wish more people would, uh, would buy into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be perfect if the world worked that way. If they just listened to us, man, we got all the answers. If they would just call us and be like, hey, how do we solve this problem? We'd, we'd figure it out for them. But, yeah, oh, it's well. that managing up. <laughs> so at some point, you did all of these things, which has nothing to do with board game design. And at some point, you got into that. How, how did that happen? Yeah, so again, lots of different things kind of coming together at the same time. So I got into gaming really when I was in college. When you play a sport, it becomes your life. It, it, it's, a full, it's a full-time job with no overtime benefits. You know, it, and so you're working 60, 80 hours a week with practice and training and film room and all this stuff, right? And so I needed something to just kind of escape and, and just get away. And I had some really good friends that I had grown up with that um, we were all at the same university. And uh, they invited me over one night for like a game night. And, you know, I grew up with Monopoly and Scrabble and all the games, Connect Four and all that. But then they were playing, oh, what was it? It was Guillotine was one I remember. That was this silly little game that was just super fun. Um, Catan and some of these other games. I was like, what are, what are these games? I didn't know these existed. What is this? And uh, like so many others, like once you once you get hooked, man, you're, you're in. And so we started playing a lot of those games. And then we got into Dungeons and Dragons. That became like a almost weekly event and going over to my friend's house and playing D&D. And that's where it started. And I'm the kind of person that, if I am going to engage with anything, I probably want to create it myself. Mm. You know, I don't want to just read books. I want to write some. I don't want to just play games. I want to design some. That's just kind of how my brain works. And so that's where it started. I was in college, and I started off designing these terrible, terrible games that I forced my friends to play test. And I'm <laughs> so sorry to them looking back because they were awful. But uh, anyway, that's where it began. And it was just a hobby, just a little side thing where I, you know my brain would kind of wander off. And, and do that kind of if I needed to unwind if I needed to kind of get away from whatever I was doing and uh, I just carried that with me into missions into ministry and it was super helpful again like we were talking about earlier like you, you carry around a lot of weight and you need something you need to detach you need to get away mm. and uh, games and game design were, were that for me for a long time I never thought about doing it professionally I never tried to get anything published it was just fun and uh, I did that for a while and also I was playing games with people experiencing homelessness I was playing games with kids at the orphanage like that was something for all of us to do right we had translated some games into Spanish for the kids at the orphanage and we had a whole box of games we would take out with us like if we served lunch or something like that we'd bust out some board games and, and play with, with folks on the street and you know so I'd been doing games for a long time when I was in Honduras uh, I really wanted to get more involved with the gaming community. I had started thinking about, okay, what if I what if I try to do this like as a real thing, like professionally, so to speak, where I actually design games and pitch them to publishers and get you know uh, game signed and stuff like that. And I thought, well, I want to be part of the community in some way. 
Well, in Honduras, it's not like you can become a, a reviewer because there's no games. Like, there's no game stores, really. I think I've, I've seen one, and it's mostly Magic Cards. Um, and so it's not like, oh, I'll go become a YouTube reviewer or something like that. It's like, I don't have access. But I thought, well, I could do a podcast, and I had just gotten good enough internet, like just barely, just barely good enough internet <laughs> where I could record podcasts in good enough quality. And so that's kind of where the Board Game Design Lab started was this idea of like, okay, I want to be part of the community. I really love game design. I wonder if I could get other designers to talk to me about it and turn it into a show. And maybe I could get like 10 or 20 people to listen to it. And that's where it began. And that was back in 2016. And uh, it's just been a wild ride. I just went over 2 million downloads last week. Wow. And so never, ever thought like that would be a thing. I never thought I'd make money off of this or, or you know, be able to do this basically full time is my main thing. It's just crazy. It's just crazy how it all has turned out. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I was telling you earlier before we started recording the reasons why I started this podcast and, and because I'm interested in the stories that people tell, but also I get to learn a lot about the things that they do. Uh, I have a few people that worked in marketing and I had no idea how it works. And I, we got into big in-depth discussion about what it does, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm, I, I play a lot of board games as well. And that's, that's why I listen to your podcast. And I, I played, uh, was it Root? Yeah, Root. Root is the, the, the game that I thought, I, could, I can probably design a game. And then I started, you know, just like you, doing mm -hmm. really bad stuff, getting my friends to play it, and there's, they're horrible, super long, nothing works. Right. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's like, it, it's a fun process. It's a fun exercise. And like you, I thought I could do, you know, the, with these little chats, I get to learn a little bit more. I get to understand those jobs a little bit more and that's what you did with board game design lab oh yeah 100 percent. and to my surprise people that i never thought would give me the time of day said yes to coming on my show you know like when i first was gonna start i was doing all the prep work and i bought a microphone and i, I watched a bunch of youtube videos and how to do it all correctly and all that and just figuring it out right and i wrote i wrote down like is it 15 i think designers or publishers or people in the industry that i was like okay here's my like first 15 let me send emails and and messages board game geek messages out to all these people and let's just see if i can get one of these people to agree to be on the show and i think 12 of them wow agreed and i was like oh shoot i gotta figure this stuff out quick and um <laughs> totally unexpected people that i was like okay this is a reach this is there's no way they're gonna say yes to some random person they've never heard of who doesn't even have a show yet who's saying hey i want to start a show would you be one of my first guests and uh, almost all of them said yes and jamie stegmaier Love him to death. He's become just a, a, such a good friend in the industry. And he was my first guest. And it just went from there. And I, I don't know. But again, that kind of goes back to maybe a bigger point of you might as well shoot the shot, man. You don't know. Like, it's probably not going to go in. It's probably not. But it might. It just might. And you don't know if you don't shoot it. Mm -hmm. So take the shot and hope for the best. And who knows? The wind might just carry it right into the basket. And it turns into something special. Yeah. We, we have a saying in, in, uh, in Portuguese, the no is guaranteed. So might as well just ask. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I'm going to borrow that. The no's guaranteed. Might as well. Oh, okay. I like it. Uh, yeah, go in knowing, hey, this is probably not going to work, but you don't know for sure. Yes. And it's kind of like a dumb and dumber. It's like, so you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, one in a million. <laughs> saying there's a chance. Yeah, I had the same thing. Like I started with this podcast. I started with the people that I knew that had um, interesting stories. And then just recently, I, I thought, I heard to the episode that you said, I think it's titled An Encouraging Word or something. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just send these emails out to these people. And it's like you said, people are nice. People are interested in sharing their stories. People are interested in 
in, in helping. And people said yes. I'm like, wow, that's that's great. That's why I've got you today here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you uh, reaching out, man. And it's it's one of those things. It's hard and simple. It's this weird like paradox, right? Because like with podcasting, I read some time ago, I think it was the average podcast doesn't make it past eight episodes. And so if you can just get to nine, you're in like the top 1% because nobody keeps going. Everybody quits. Everybody stops, right? Because it becomes hard. It becomes work. It becomes mm. a grind. You know, it becomes challenging. And most people don't have enough motivation to keep going because they're relying on motivation. And so if you can figure out, no matter what you're doing, creatively or, or otherwise, with your kids, your, your marriage, whatever it is, like if you can figure out how to like not have to use motivation to get things done, if you can create schedules and routines and, and processes and systems, you can separate yourself over time. Right. So even if you start off as a nobody with no skills and no natural talent, whatever, consistency and just being willing to put in the work to sacrifice, to be disciplined over time, you will separate yourself from almost everybody else. Now, there are the LeBron Jameses of the world who are both obsessed and know about systems and also just touched by God as like the greatest in the world. <laughs> you know, Lionel Messi, Ronaldo, like some of these amazing athletes, some of these people who just God has kissed their foot to kick a ball into a goal but then they also have processes and systems and they practice and sacrifice like all that stuff like okay they're just one in a, a, a gazillion people but if you're just an average person you can separate yourself from almost everybody else 99 percent of everybody else just by being consistent working hard and just keep going when everybody else quits yeah it's good advice good advice for anything really so this podcast that you started doing about board game design that led you to designing your own board games and publishing some of your own board games as well and how if people want to listen more about this you listen to Gabe's podcast but uh, give us a little bit uh, like a, a summary of what that's like what what's evolved what's the, the the struggling points yeah for sure so I mean like anything else creatively there's no there's no magic as far as getting better it just takes time it takes working at it it takes consistency there's no substitute for reps mm. You know, if you go into a weight room and you're like, okay, I want to be able to bench press 300 pounds. Well, there's no substitute for getting on the bench and just bench pressing. <laughs> like that's, it. that's all there is. Like there's no, nothing you can take. There's no uh, magical thing. Even if you take a bunch of steroids, you still have to do bench press reps. And creatively, it's the same thing. If you want to be a good painter, a good writer, a good movie maker, a good board game designer, you just got to put the reps in and just do it over and over and over again and do it in spite of it being terrible, in spite of it not going the way you had envisioned in your mind. And that's one of the hardest things is like, you have this vision in your head, like how it's going to be. And then you put it out on the page or you put it out there and it's like, Oh wow, this sucks. And is nowhere near what I hoped. And then you do it again and you do it again. And the more you do it, the more the idea in your head actually becomes what reality turns into on the page. Mm. And, and so I've just, kept doing that man and uh, designed a lot of bad stuff and eventually got a little better and got a little better and got some help and talked to some people that are a lot smarter than me and i was interviewing all these amazing designers and learning from them and taking notes and trying to apply that into my own process and eventually you get to a place where you know you make stuff good enough where other people want to buy it yeah. again i haven't sold a million copies of, of any games yet but i feel like i'm i'm getting there you know like things have gotten better like i look back a few years ago i was like okay i'm a lot better than i was then and that's another thing is, is to not worry about comparing yourself to everybody else because you're not racing against them. You're racing against yourself. You know, are mm -hmm. you better today than you were yesterday? Not are you better than Steven Spielberg? Are you better than, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien? Whoever, whoever your, like, all-time great hero is of whatever medium you're in. Don't compare yourself to them. Uh, compare yourself to you last week, last year. And are you growing? Are you getting better? Because, again, it's a process. And it's a lifelong thing. And so just keep, keep working at it. And eventually, 
good things happen. Yeah, and uh, somebody told me you have to learn to enjoy failure. Oh yeah, that's what you'll be doing all the time, and each failure is an opportunity to learn. And the more you fail, the more you learn, the better you become. Yeah. So that's that's all you're doing. Keep failing, keep failing, keep failing, keep failing. Right. You know, out of all those failures, you get one good thing. Oh yeah, and what's what's the phrase is like sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And I like that. Yeah. It's like, I didn't lose. I just learned. I learned how to not to do it. I learned a, a better way to do it. I learned what I won't do next time. You know, and there's no quote. I can't remember who said it, but um, he said, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, mm. fail again, fail better. And I love that. It's like, fail better. Can I fail better today than I failed yesterday? And just keep going forward, right? Because every time you fail, there's still some progress. They're still figuring it out. Now, this is some kind of like, you know, the failure killed you. Well, okay, maybe other people can learn from your mistakes. But for the most part, you're going to fail <laughs> forward, hopefully. And uh, yeah, become a better artist, better creator, better husband, better whatever out of it. Yeah. In software, we've got this uh, concept of failing fast. Mm. You have to do arrange things so that you can fail as fast as you can, because the faster you fail, the faster you learn. There's a YouTuber, uh, Simone Yertz. She set out to be the queen of shitty robots, <laughs> because what she said was, I want to make the worst robots ever. And now she makes amazing things. So she set out on purpose to fail. Yeah, absolutely. There's no like anecdote kind of thing that talked about a pottery class that was broken in into two different groups. Oh, right. Yeah. And um in one group the the teacher said, Okay, I'm only going to grade you based on one pot for this entire semester. And so you gotta learn and study and do all these things and you're gonna make one pot and that's gonna be your grade. And the other half of the class, the the teacher said, Okay, I'm gonna grade you on the quantity. Like you're gonna make as many as possible and I'm gonna grade you on the whole. At the end of the class, the people that focused on quantity more than just the quality of one actually created the best quality pots because they had created so many, you know, and it was more than just theory. It's more than just learning and, and watching videos and, and listening to people talk about it. It was actually doing. So quantity creates quality. And like you're saying, fail fast. Like if my company can figure out how to fail faster than your company, I'm going to win overall more than likely because mm -hmm. like I'm going to I'm going to have more pots that I've kind of figured out how not to do it. And I'm going to have a better pot overall at the end. And so I think that's just something to always keep in mind. Keep, keep going, keep working. Yeah. You were just telling me earlier that you're now transitioning to do this more creative work full time. How has that transformation been like to you? Yeah. So, I mean, everything's pros and cons. Um, there's no, there's no right or wrong. It's all about trade-offs, you know, like there's no perfect solution. That's one thing I've learned as I've gotten older. Like there's no one answer. It's all about trade-offs. And so, yeah, a couple of years ago, I was able to basically flip where my full-time you know, school teaching and things like that turned into part-time. I took on a different role at the school. And then my part-time stuff of game design and the podcast and all this kind of creative stuff, that turned into full-time. The side hustle became the main hustle and the main hustle became the side hustle. And that was interesting. And that presented its own set of challenges as far as like number of hours in my week that I was doing things. The main thing is bandwidth. That's been the mm. absolute main challenge. It's so different one side versus the other, right? Where it's not even about the hours because the hours is manageable. The issue is, okay, I'm working on this for three hours and now I have to like completely detach from it, turn my brain to a totally different setting and then go over here and work on this other thing. And that's that's hard. Uh, and so that's one thing that's it, it's just been a struggle. But um, yeah, looking forward to uh, soon here in a couple months where basically all my contracts are ending contract at the school is going to end the the mission stuff i've been working on as far as like doing different homeless ministry things usually i do that in the summer mm. and so like during the school year i was in honduras teaching and then uh, end of may through early august i would be in atlanta doing homeless ministry and things like that leading mission trips so a lot of that stuff is kind of phasing out and i'm sure i'll phase some other stuff back in i i have a hard time not being around people and trying to help and trying to do something you know to kind of make somebody's life better so anyway those things are kind of 
sliding out and more creative stuff, more interesting opportunities uh, as far as my publishing business and content creation. I think some new things are sliding in and mainly bandwidth, I think is going to be the main best part about that, right? Where I don't have to completely change my brain. There's something totally different. I can just kind of yeah. shift it just a little bit. And now I'm over here. You know, I was doing board game publishing. Now I'm doing board game content creation. Now I'm doing board game design. Now I'm doing board game podcasting, whatever. Like, at least it's still all in the same sphere. And that, that's one of the main things I'm looking forward to. Mm. Uh, so we touched it just a little bit earlier where you said, if I could just have one good year in the, in the NFL. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, sports is different because it's it's very physical. And, you know, you age. And at one point, it's like, yeah, you can't, you're, I don't know. You, I don't know how, how it is in American football, but in, like, normal soccer, uh, it's like, I said normal soccer because I'm European. Um, <laughs> Where I come from, that would be a different thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you get to a certain age and you're like, you're 36, you're out. You're not good enough anymore. There, there's this 18-year-old that can do mm -hmm. what you do and even better. He's probably cheaper too. Oh, exactly. So they're, they're going to go with that one. So but but not, not so let's not count that. Let's count the, the, the mission stuff that you said that you might might phase in a little bit. Would, would, you, would you still want to do that even though you're full-time? Uh, in the board game sphere now. Yeah, for sure. So first of all, the the age as far as American football is about 27. Wow. Okay. Right. Once you've yeah, it's it's a lot younger than baseball and basketball and, and soccer and all of those stuff, man, because it's so terrible on your body. Like I I didn't play at the highest of the highest levels, and my body still messed up, and I never got injured. Like I never broke anything, I never tore anything. Uh, I never had a major surgery or anything like that, and so but still I've got arthritis. Probably the only person that hasn't have an injury. <laughs> Yes, uh, but uh, just blessed, uh, just lucky. You know, the time I took some shots, man, and I'm sure I've got a little bit of brain damage here and there. Uh, like, I wonder <laughs> how, many, how many brain cells I've, I've destroyed just getting blasted. But, um, yeah, cause I, and unfortunately, I've got friends that are, they can't run anymore. Like, their knees are just so bad, and they're 32 years old. You know, uh, I've got other friends that had so many concussions that there are huge black spots in their memory where they just don't remember a couple years of their lives. And it's like, that's probably not going to be good for you long term and so yeah as much as i love the game of football it is so awful on your body uh and your brain and it's just again the sacrifice the trade-off that you make for a game that you love and that you try to make a lot of money doing that very few people get to get to do that but a lot of us still have the injuries still have the, like the ongoing problems and like arthritis and different things but uh, back to your point uh as far as like uh doing this other stuff yeah i'm looking forward honestly to doing like the mission stuff, the ministry stuff, just as a volunteer mm -hmm. where like my paychecks aren't tied to it, where I can do it more because I really want to. And I, I, I've always really wanted to, but there are times where you're just like, man, this sucks because it's a job and I'm paying taxes and like all this stuff that comes with work, you know, and having to handle budgets and hire people and fire people and different things I've had to do over the years as part of the, part of these mission organizations that I've been a part of. And it's nice just to be able to show up and be like, Hey, I'm here for a few hours. And I'm going home, <laughs> you know, and I, I don't have to worry about it. You handle all that other stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to sweep and I'm going to mop and I'm, I'm going to stack some chairs and I'm going to go home and uh, I don't have to worry about, you know, making sure the, the power bill gets paid and making sure that uh, the doors get locked so people don't break in and steal everything we have. Like there's just so many things you have to worry about when it's your job and yeah. it, it's going to be nice just to kind of do it as a volunteer and, you know, hopefully help other people because I also understand it. Like, I understand that side of things. So I can come in hopefully and be like, Hey, I know that there are these things about your job that really suck. And so I'm going to help you do some of those on a volunteer basis. And that way you're kind of freed up to do the stuff that's really in, enjoyable, really fun. The reason you got into missions or got into helping people in the first place. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of transitioning to, to that side. 
yeah, it's a completely different doing something as a job and doing something as a hobby. Oh, yeah. So now that you're doing this, uh, you want to do all of this board game stuff full time. How how did you react to it, and how did the people around you react to it? Because like you were saying earlier before we started recording, creative business isn't often very appreciated economically. So what was what was this, the reaction of people surrounding you? Not not very much appreciated economically is like the nicest way you could have said it's <laughs> a terrible idea financially. Uh, it's going to be hard to pay your mortgage and you know send your kids to college doing creative work. It really is. It's one of the most challenging things in the world to monetize especially board games. Board games are not lucrative for anybody. You know, there's like a handful of people, like a very small number of people who have made a ton of money. And there's a bunch of people who make just enough. And there's everybody else that makes basically nothing versus, you know, at least in like music or movies or things like that. There's, there's a bunch of people that have made like a gazillion dollars, you know, who are just generational wealth has been created for their families. Board games. I mean, the guy that made Catan, you know, there's like a couple people. And so even, even with board games, the ceiling is very, very low financially compared to other creative outlets. Now, to be fair, the competition is also much lower. There are a lot more people trying to make movies, a lot more people trying to you know, create music and things like that than there are trying to create board games. So I guess it all kind of balances out. Yeah, it's challenging, man. Uh, it's hard. And it's, it's a whole other thing you got to learn because most people that are creative don't necessarily have a good business mind. Like they're not super organized. They're not like they don't grasp the accounting side, the logistics, the fulfillment, like all the stuff that goes with the business side. And so that's been a challenge over the last few years of just getting my head around those things. Um, luckily, I had a lot of experience working in the church, working with budgets, working with, you know, business side of stuff. So that was helpful to kind of carry that into publishing. Um, I also got smart and hired some people to do that stuff for me. It's the things that I hate that I'm not any good at. It's like, let me find somebody who's better at this. They're going to do it and they're going to enjoy it. And I can just pay them a fee because that's a challenge. But like I said, it's it's hard, man. And you almost have to, it's almost like investing. You got to... You got to spread it out. You can't just put everything into Tesla. Now, if you would put everything into Tesla like 10 years ago, you're probably doing okay right now. But <laughs> but right now, you probably shouldn't take your entire life savings and put it into one stock. Like it's much better to kind of diversify. Mm. And with creative work, I think it's the same thing. If you're really going to make a living at it, diversify. And so like I've got the podcast, it brings in a little bit of money. I've got books I've written. I'm working on more. They're bringing in some money. I've got games that I'm publishing, bring in some money. I've got a consulting and like a coaching side of things that brings in some money. So I've got all these revenue streams. Uh, hopefully, you know, they don't all blow up at the same time, hmm. right? But if something is a flop, if something doesn't go well, then I've got some other things I can kind of supplement income. And that's nothing about doing other jobs like part-time. It's like that was bringing in income. And so I didn't have to worry so much about, okay, how am I going to pay my bills this month? I better better create another game. You know, it's, it's hard to do. Yeah. And so I think diversity as far as like diversification, uh, as far as like what you're, what you're working on doing things, it's a smarter way to go. So nobody went to you and was like, are you crazy? about focusing just on these things? No. Luckily, I, I married well. <laughs> so my wife is just amazing. And uh, she's super supportive. She's super helpful. Uh, does a great job with being a mom, being a wife, uh, and, and doing things uh, around. And um, so she's been great. My parents have also just been excellent. And also, I didn't jump right in. Like, I've talked to some people that they're like, okay, I'm about to go full-time in the gaming industry. And so my question is to them is like, okay, how much experience do you have? And they're like, none. I'm just getting started. It's like, okay, this is a bad idea. This is a terrible idea because this it doesn't work that way you know where i'm just going to go make a full-time living overnight like no you have to build up into that and so that was another thing that kind of helped me i've been i did this for years at a loss right not making any money where the podcast was nothing but a loss everything i was designing and doing like nothing was getting signed nothing was getting published i was i didn't have my own company built up yet and so it was nothing but a negative but then i built it up and i built a community and i built 
customers and all these different things, right? And so by the time I was talking to people about, yeah, I'm going to go do this more as my full-time job, I was already making money. Mm. And so there was nothing they could say. You know, like people can say what they want until you cash them checks. Like once you start cashing checks, it's like, hey, this is real. You know, I was talking to um, a game designer named Justin Gary, and he was a Magic the Gathering player for a long time, several years, and he was professional. And I remember talking to him on my, my podcast, and I was like, did people make fun of you? You know, and he's like, well, I guess, yeah, some of them did, but this paid for my college. And so, like, what are they going to say? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, he was making, like, close to 100 grand a year off Magic. It's like, okay, people can say whatever they want. They can make fun of you all day long until you cash some checks, dude, and then who cares? You know, like they're over there in college loan debt and you're you're on a free ride because of magic the freaking gathering and so you know make fun of it all you want yeah yeah so uh you, you did a lot of missions before you did some english teaching and you're you're in the in the board game sphere now and and also football as well so have you got advice for people who would like to get into one or or all of these areas yeah so i mean i think it's been one of my biggest drawbacks honestly What's the old phrase? like jack of all trades, master of none, <laughs> right? Where, you're, where your focus is so spread out, right? It's, it's that whole like chase two rabbits, both will escape. Like you, you really need to focus. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. And that's why I'm, I'm phasing some things out. That's why I'm quitting jobs. I'm walking, I am walking away from things that have made me good money over the years, that have brought a lot of fulfillment and joy to my life, things that I don't necessarily want to leave. I don't want to quit. I, I love doing them. I'm good at them. But it's time to do something else. And it's time to focus more on just a, a few things as opposed to being so spread out doing so many things. Mm. If you spread yourself too thin, you're, you're not going to be super successful at anything. You might be moderately successful at a handful of things. And that's cool. And if you want to live that life, there's nothing wrong with it. I've been doing that for years and I've really enjoyed it. But now it's like, okay, what if I really did just put a ton, not all, but a ton of my focus onto just a couple things? Like how good could I become? Like how, how many people could I help overall if I really, truly focus in on it. And so I'm going to try it, man. And uh, I'll report back here uh, a few years from now, positive or negative, <laughs> <laughs> success or failure. But um, I'd say, I say you have to really decide. You have to look in the mirror and decide who you want to be and what you want to do and realize you can't say yes to everything. Uh, and and the, the trouble is when you say yes to something, you're actually saying no to everything else, you know, because um, you only have so many hours in a day. There's only so much energy in your body. There's only so much time depending on how much you want to spend with your family and your friends and for your own mental health and all that kind of stuff. Like there's only so much you can do and it's not everything. And you just got to decide, Hey, what, what do I really want to do? What do I, what do I want to be known for? What do I want to focus on? How good could I become if I just motivate or, or just um, devoted as much time as I could to this one or two things uh, as possible. And then go from there. Um, now you might be in a, a time where you're like, okay, I'm going to try a bunch of different stuff. I'm going to see what sticks. Like you throw as much spaghetti at the wall as possible. And we're going to see which noodle stick. And that's what I did for a while. And that's kind of where the podcast came out of. I was trying a lot of different stuff at the time. Uh, I wrote a book. I was trying to make some online courses. I started a YouTube channel where I was doing like little life advice and things like that. And I was going to do the board game podcast. Like I was just doing a bunch of stuff. And the board game podcast was the thing that just took off. And it's like, okay, let's focus on that for a while. Let's see what we're, let's see where that goes. And now I'm coming up on 300 episodes, you know? And so I think that's fine. You know, try a bunch of stuff, see what, get you going, see what gets you excited, see what works, see what other people, you know, latch onto or buy into. Mm -hmm. And maybe help, and that might help you get some direction. Um, but eventually I, I, I got to prioritize and, uh, and then get real focused and devoted and make some sacrifices. Don't put your, all, all your eggs in one basket, put them in lots of baskets, oh, yeah. see which ones uh, take off. Yeah. And also be open to evolution, be open to pivoting. Mm. 
Because mm. uh, you might have a really good idea, but you're coming at it from the wrong angle. One of my favorite stories, and I think this is true. Uh, somebody have to fact check me, but either way, Viagra, which we all know and love as the thing that helps old men get erections, right? That started off as a group of scientists and researchers and, and pharmaceutical folks trying to create a drug that was better for your circulation that was going to help with people that had like any kind of heart issue or it would help um, high-end athletes perform better because your heart pumped faster, pumped better, more efficiently, like helped out your circulatory system. And so the story as I heard it was that they tried it on a group of soccer players, like these pretty high-end elite athlete soccer players, and they gave them all Viagra before the big match, which is hilarious looking back. But anyway, <laughs> um, and so the, 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 find, the findings... The, uh, the players were like, yeah, I felt good. Like, I felt like like I didn't get as tired, and I, I felt like I could, you know, my breath was a lot better and all this stuff. But I had this, like, erection, like, most of the game. You know? <laughs> and the scientists were like, wait a minute. We could market this to elite athletes, which there's only a handful. Like, there's 7 billion-something people in the world. There ain't that many athletes, really, like, that would benefit from this. But there's a whole bunch of old people and people with erectile problems that we can market this to, and we're going to be trillionaires. And that's what they did. They pivoted away from it being a heart drug, a heart, you know, a circulatory drug, to hey, this will help you have an erection and you know a better sex life. And a, a zillion dollars later, here we are. We all know Viagra yeah. for for what it is now. And so you know, you might have a really great idea that you're just marketing to the wrong people, or you're targeting uh, the wrong audience. You have the wrong angle. And so just be willing to change and try something different and it might turn into uh, Viagra. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, find your niche. That's right. Well, thank you, Gabe. This has been a very enjoyable, a lot of good advice, a really good story as well. Thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. And uh, if, uh, if people want to you know, listen uh, to your podcast, hear more about you, get in contact with you, that kind of stuff, where would they go? Yeah, so the Board Game Design Lab is the name of the show. It's also the name of the community. If you're a Facebook user and want to join the uh, online community, we've got about 11, a little over 11,000 people now, which, again, boggles my wow. mind. I, I, I thought, if I can get 10 people to listen to this show, 10, like double digits, you know, and I wouldn't even say 10. I'd be like, oh, well, double digit people listen to my show. Um, and the fact that 11,000 plus people are now in this community is just phenomenal. It's, it's humbling. And, uh, it's the most the most amazing encouraging community on the internet as far as i'm concerned and so if anybody's interested in game design or just you know you want to know more about it come come check us out uh, boardgamedesignlab.com is the website you can find the podcast on apple and then android any anywhere you normally find podcasts you can search for it and find it there and uh yeah yeah well thank you very much Gabe, and uh i'll see you guys next episode see everybody